Well, it is good to see all of you uh, here today. And uh, if you're new, my name is Josh. Uh, I am one of the pastors here, and we are going right now through uh, the book of Romans. And we are in a challenging passage, and I tried to establish uh, really clearly last week a kind of a foundation for a topic that is not uh, understood in the church today and often avoided because it's misunderstood. And that topic is the wrath of God. And I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, uh, to go back and listen to that message. And I just want to remind you that in verse 18 of chapter one, Paul begins by bringing forth this universal indictment that all people, that means all, and all in scripture means what? All, all people stand condemned under the wrath of God. This is an incredible statement. It's a heading that Paul is going to establish. And what he's going to do is he's going to dig in from multiple angles to bring us to a deeper understanding of our need. It's what Paul Zoll in his, in his book on grace and practice refers to a need for low anthropology, that the church needs to grab a hold of that reformed vision of total depravity. And total depravity was not a doctrine that was shaped by a particular sect of Christianity uh, you know, 500 years ago. Total depravity is a doctrine that's found throughout the entirety of scripture. And all it means is this, is that you and I are made in the image of God and that sin, that is humanity's rebellion against God's rule and rejection of his grace, means that sin has entered in and infiltrated every arena of human existence. So that the image is still there doesn't mean that there's nothing that you can do that's good. It just means that everything you do is mixture. And that mixture has actually rendered us impotent in our ability to save ourselves. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to go through different categories of human existence under this reality of sin. All are, have fallen short of the glory of God. And he's not going to leave any stone uh, un, unexplored. He's going to turn over every rock and show us every facet of this reality of how sin has infiltrated our existence. And this is what happens when the creature replaces the truth of God for a lie and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. And so Paul wants us to understand what the wrath of God is. And he says that the wrath of God is already revealed from heaven. Now, Scripture is clear that we believe uh, an orthodox vision is that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead in the flesh in uh, that in his resurrection state revealed himself to his disciples and that after 40 days of teaching his disciples about the, about the coming kingdom and the promise of the Holy Spirit that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and that we have found ourselves in this peculiar age, it's called the age of grace in which God is, is through the church continuing his great redemptive purposes. He is seeking and saving that which is lost, which is humanity, through the conduits of you and I as born again, redeemed believers. But there will be a day when the age of grace comes to its close and we are told that Jesus will return in the flesh and that he will come to establish a new heavens and new earth and that there will be a final judgment and every person past, present and future will give an account to God. And it is those who are found in Christ who have put their trust in him, not in their works, that will find themselves saved. But Paul says that wrath is already being played out. And what does that look like? And so I stated last week, as Bart brilliantly established in his commentary on Romans, that the wrath of God is simply the righteousness of God apart from or without Christ. In other words, we just sang it in this song, what is God called in scripture? We're told it's, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God because our God is a what? A consuming fire. Again and again, it says no person could stand in the presence of God and live. And the way I like to say it is imagine this. If you were, we benefit from the sun, but if you were to be too close to the sun, you would be burned up. 
And the, the reality is, is that Jesus is like this covering that allows us to be in proximity to God in a unique way. It's a restoration of relationship that allows us to be in the presence of God without being consumed by that presence. We often think of hell as the absence of God being put out of the presence of God, as it says in the letters to the Thessalonians. But that word presence is actually a relational word. It's you are no longer in relationship with God, but it is not the absence of his presence. It is his full presence without the possibility of relationship. And this is what will make hell hell. It's not God's absence, it's his presence. And for us who are found in Christ, his fire cleanses and purifies for those that do not have Christ or reject God's answer to our dilemma, which is sin, then his consuming fire is that it's consuming. And I think that this is something that's important for us to understand because how do we see wrath being played out today? Well, wrath is not an attribute of God. Wrath is his attribute of love violated. It is the attribute of his holiness violated. Because it's, it's not just his love violated, it's also his justice. And when we see injustice in the world, we want justice. The problem is, is that we're very selective in where we want justice. We want justice in that person over there, but we often are incapable of seeing that we ourselves are just as fundamentally deserving of retribution as the person that we, you know, well, I'm not Hitler. No, but you're a human. And Paul says, here's the basic premise of the text. And I just want to be an encouragement. I want to humbly come before you and tell you that you suck <laughs> so bad, so much more than you think you do. My dad actually said to me, he goes, I go, dad, do you believe in hell? He goes, I totally believe in hell. And I go, really? I go, why do you believe in hell? And he goes, because I know so many people that need to go there. <laughs> and I go, what about you? And he goes, not me. He goes, I've always been a good person. I'm like, what? Like, what about, what, what about your absence in my life? Incapable of really like, playing with it. And this is, but this is the tendency for all of us. And so as we get into this text, Paul's going to actually get into some very uncomfortable things. He's going to talk about sexuality and where, where God has, has declared that this is the appropriate place for sexuality to be experienced. It's going to challenge everything that we are being told by our society. And what I want you to know is that there's nothing new under the sun because the, the era in which Paul was writing this, it was the exact same, same sort of spirit in the air in the Roman Empire. And Paul is going to challenge those things because his goal is not to single out people groups. What he's trying to do is to show us that everybody falls short. Everybody's going to come up from the religious person who thinks that they're right with God, the morally upright, everybody has violated God's law. And so you'll be, you'll, he'll focus in on one group, but the purpose is not to say this sin is worse than any other sin. The purpose is to show that this is the natural outworking of what it looks like when God's people, when humanity exchanges the truth of God for a lie and we place ourselves upon the throne that only God should be on, is that the moment we begin to define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, the moment we begin to define our own morality is the moment we make an absolute mess and disaster of God's creation. And ultimately, it's still his, whether you want to recognize it or not. This is why it says, every knee shall bow to King Jesus. Whether you want to, rep want to accept him as Lord or not, there will be a day when you will have to recognize that he is. And so this is, the, this is the, the context by which we are going to be dealing with because what Paul is going to show us is how this wrath is being revealed now. And it's not what we think. We often think that if we go into these horrible things or we do these horrible things, that God's going to somehow strike us down with lightning. And honestly, sometimes that probably would be more merciful than what he actually does, which is he gives us over to our desires and he allows us to make absolute disasters of our lives that we might discover our need. And this is where the condemnation is being experienced in the world today is God says, fine, you want to be your own gods? Let's see how well you do at that. And we live in an age that has proven itself incapable 
of playing the role of God? And are we at least willing to admit that as we jump into this text? And so I know that it can be a challenging thing, and I want you to understand this. Door of Hope holds tenaciously to the orthodoxy of the church and its belief that Scripture is God-breathed and authoritative for all areas of life and that we do not have the right to pick and choose what parts of Scripture we want to submit to and what parts of Scripture we want to reject. We want to understand context, of course. We want to understand the bigger picture of how it all points to Jesus. But we need to understand that King Jesus, if he is king and he has a kingdom, then he has the right as the king to establish his ethics. And we can either submit to that or we can be crushed by the consequences of playing out the role of God for ourselves. And that's what we need to understand. We can recognize that the scriptures are difficult, but we never have the right to apologize for the scriptures. Because if we believe that the gospel and the gospel alone can set us free, then why would we apologize for the difficulty of how it challenges the norms of society because society has not proven itself capable of giving us the peace that we're all looking for. Can we agree with that? So let's read through the text and let's just put it out there and then we're just gonna jump in, all right? Okay, here we go. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There's the first time he says it. When God gives up, what a horrible thing to even declare. God, excuse me, I started the wrong one. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, verse 24, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. Second time, it's declared. God gives them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for, that, for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the penalty, the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, here it goes again, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. And here's where we find, once again, that there is no one in this room that isn't found in this list. And this is why the gospel is good news, because the bad news is really unfortunately bad. It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Darn it. (laughs) It's like every millennial's child. (laughs) Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, and then he just flips over another stone, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So then he puts even under that, that realm of the wrath of God played upon those that may not participate, but they approve of those who do participate. And this challenges even our notions of the kind of entertainment that we take in and the sort of things that we allow our minds to meditate upon day in and day out. And so you see here that this is a challenging passage and why we have to be so careful. And I think that what is so damaging and the reason people get so uncomfortable with this text is not just the current climate in which we live and in a place like Portland that's as progressive, but it's often our discomfort as Christians, and this is where we do great damage, is we surrender our orthodoxy as a way of combating the abuses in the church toward particular groups in the past. And listen, that is not the way to go about uh, being a people who function in humility and present the gospel of grace. That no matter how, and I want you guys to hear me clearly, the purpose of Paul's text is to push us to a place where we recognize that in spite of how horribly messed up we are, every one of us, that God loves us. That while we were still yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. 
But one of the challenges is that there's many things that we don't like to even admit might be sin. And the fact is, is that every one of us sin every day, all day long. Because everything you do, even in the power of the Holy Spirit, is still ultimately mixture. And this is why we need Jesus. Because Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And this is why my heart has been broken when I see the lack of a posture of humility, especially in the pulpit. When I see a pastor get up on the pulpit and rail on the LGBTQ community while all, all along secretly having an affair with his, with his assistant. Or even more subtle and more prevalent is the absolute arrogance that is often found in the pulpit. And yet scripture is clear that God finds pride an abomination. And yet we're like, well, it's not as bad as that group over there. No, the bottom line is we are all lost without God's grace. And this is why the gospel, why I'm so passionate about the gospel, because I believe it is the only solution to the dilemmas of our culture today. And if we don't believe that, we're wasting our time even being here. Let me just begin with this, this as we jump into this text because we're going to see how God has given us over, given our culture, our world over to its desire and the mess that we find ourselves in and even the confusion that often runs rampant in the church as we become apologetic for the scriptures rather than simply surrendering to Jesus' authority and believing that all of us are, are sinful who need God's grace every moment of every day. And this is how we should approach the world. And we're called to not judge those outside of the church. But we should actually, as I, I heard one person say, we should be hardest on ourselves and easiest on others. Uh, and I think that that's a good rule of thumb. I, you know, I, read, I watched a show, and this will probably, for some of you, some of you will judge me immediately for even saying I watched it. But there's a TV show, I think it's the greatest show ever, in the history of television. My wife even hates hearing me talk about it. And she made me promise that I would never mention it at church and I, I can't keep the promise. Uh, and that's a show, uh, this British show called Fleabag. And there's this woman, Phoebe Waller-Bridges, she won every stinking award uh, that you can win for this show. She directed it, she wrote it, she starred in it. But what I find so profound about it was, was that she looked honestly at the things that modern men and women chase to find fulfillment. And she, is, she does not romanticize on any level the way that most entertainment romanticizes our supposed sexual liberation. And in this show, she's a 30, early 30-something 30 woman who's single, and she is trying to find meaning and value by sleeping with just endless numbers of men. And, and sadly, her, her mother has died tragically. Her best friend has committed suicide. Her sister's neurotic, successful businesswoman. And her sister's, her sister's husband is this horrible guy that's always cheating on his sister and even hits on the main character. And she is just this mess, but you can't help but love her. She does this thing through the whole show where she breaks the fourth wall and she's constantly letting you into her thoughts. And in the first season, I love, she, there's one line where she says, I have a horrible feeling I am greedy, perverted, selfish, apathetic, cynical, depraved, morally bankrupt woman who can't even call herself a feminist. I'm like, That's, this is a comedy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> In the beginning of the second season, her father, for her birthday, gives her a free counseling session. Uh, he pays for her to go to counseling. And she goes to the counselor. And the counselor says, so why do you think your father suggested you come to counseling? And she says, I think my mother died and he can't talk about it. And my sister and I didn't speak for a year because she thinks I tried to sleep with her husband. And because I have spent most of my adult life using sex to deflect from the screaming void inside my empty heart. And then she looks at the camera and she goes, I'm good at this. <laughs> I want you to think about that line. I have spent most of my adult life using sex to deflect from the screaming void inside my empty heart. That is a profound and honest look at the promiscuity of our age. And here it is in a, in a popular television show, and this is why I like it, because she's not trying to make it look pretty. 
She's not trying to say that this will give you, that, that, that she's not trying to romanticize these things. She's showing you it is empty and she's honest about its emptiness. And so it is that Paul is trying to show us that this is what happens when we exchange God. This is what's happened in the world is that we have reversed God's good design. We have turned his order upside down and we have rationalized ourselves into a black hole. And he begins with this. Here is the disintegration. Three times in verses 24 through 28, he says, he says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, and since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind. This is what Oscar Wilde meant when he said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. When God gives up. Psalm 81 verses 11 and 12, it says, God speaking through the, through the psalmist, but my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over. I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. He pulls back his protective hand. He says, you want to follow your own path? You want to do what you want? Fine, go do it. But it's going to be heartbreaking. And I think that this is what we have to understand is that the continuation of sin and its consequences is that it leads us deeper and deeper until we lose God as well as ourselves. And this is its condemnation. When we lose God, we lose ourselves. When we lose God, we lose ourselves. James chapter one tells us that God is not the one tempting us to sin, but that each one is tempted by, by their own passions, their own desires. And when they're enticed and that the, the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? To death. And we are told that the wages of sin is what? Death. And this is the very words of the unman in Lewis's Paralandria when trying to tempt the Eve on this new creation on Venus. And he says to her, I have come to give you death and to give it to you abundantly. And this is the very antithesis of what Jesus has come to give, which is to give life. And so what we see in these, in these three times that God gives them up is first of all, in verses 24 and 25, he gives them up to distorted worship. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We need to understand that the disintegration uh, of, of existence as human beings uh, comes from this detachment from God and this elevation of ourselves to the throne of God. And the first mark of wickedness in a godless society is widespread sexual immorality. Notice, godlessness and wickedness. When we get rid of God, wickedness is everything we do. And this is where it's really challenging. We think of wickedness or evil as that thing that those people do. Wickedness is everything we do apart from Jesus. Everything we do in our attempts to control our own outcome, our own future. When we try to make decisions without any regard for Jesus, when there's no surrender and the only thing we're putting our faith in is our broken selves, this is wickedness as defined by scripture because wickedness is our attempts to live in freedom from a God who tells us what to do. And we don't like to be told what to do, and we have an issue with authority. God removes the societal restraints to let these things come to the surface, and by that means, he forces us to experience the full effects of what we do. He gives us over to uncleanness. Now, I want you to notice that here we have this, this incredible statement that he gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity by the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so he talks here about the unbelievable sexual immorality and the culture at the time in which he writes this letter. But how are we living in any different kind of age today? Because sexuality, sex, has been elevated to the ultimate experience 
as human beings. It's the best thing that one can experience. And it has been so elevated to such a supreme place that we don't even understand that it is so far removed from reality. And even when we know the truth that sex is a very small part of human existence, we still act as if it's the main thing, like it's as important as breathing. And see, this is fundamentally problematic because what it does is it creates a belief system that our culture has bought into that says that I cannot be a satisfied, complete human being unless I have sex. And so it diminishes the, the power of, and the dignity of singleness. It, it, it diminishes the challenge that Paul puts upon the church. He says, I wish you were all like me, single, so that you would be completely devoted to Jesus. We forget that if it's true that one, a person cannot be complete unless they are actually experiencing sex, then, then we forget that Jesus, who is the most complete, fulfilled human being who has ever lived, was single, unless you're gonna believe some false story called the Da Vinci Code, which I'm pretty sure is not based in any sort of historical knowledge base, and yet people bought into it, hook, line, and sinker, because we want to believe that Jesus is imperfect because then we don't have to hold to his silly, archaic morality. And here's the thing, is that what has our society's sexual liberation even given us? Darcy and I came to faith later in life, me at 27, her at 32, and we carry in our lives the baggage and the wounds and the heartbreak of promiscuity. My high school years were spent just chasing girls. I just wanted to sleep with as many people as possible. I wanted to be a rock star. I was selfish. And what did it land me? 18 years old, two girls, two different one-night stands that both got pregnant and ended up getting abortions. How is that beneficial? How has that led to any sort of enriching of my life? How is that the, the false belief that if we, if we can sleep around, we'll somehow become good lovers? That's, that's a false dichotomy too, because every person in their life is gonna experience some sort of sexual dysfunction as well. That's even hard to admit, isn't it? Because we believe that this is the ultimate experience. Why do we not recognize the absolute objectification of women in the pornography industry, and yet it's the greatest blight, I believe, against feminism? It's defense or it's willingness to turn the other cheek and to ignore the fact that women are being objectified and actually reduced to objects that are meant to be controlled, even beaten and manipulated. Do you know that porn, the most hit porn sites in the porn industry, which is billions and billions of dollars, is driven by women being actually physically abused, assaulted, kind of fake rapes, if you will, because arousal addiction is at the root of the pornography industry which means that the more you watch it, the less it satisfies. And the more you watch it, the more hardcore you want it to be. All you need to watch is a powerful TED Talk called The Demise of Guys. And he argued the reason that men are failing in every arena of life right now and falling behind women in school and are more and more dysfunctional in their relationships is because of, because of rampant pornography. Our boys are being introduced to this at 11 years old or younger. Our girls are being introduced to this now at the same age. There is no distinction any longer. And see, this is the kind of thing that we need to understand. And so it is that we all of a sudden feel uncomfortable saying that the best possible path for human sexuality is within the confines of one man, one woman in marriage, and that sex is not the essence of what it means to be a human being. We are all sexual, we all need intimacy, but intimacy is far more than the act of sex. And yet, we have bought into the lie and now we're uncomfortable with addressing the absolute disaster that it is making in the church. Because people come to church week after week fully entrenched with sexual addiction, 
guys and girls living together, sleeping together, and they're like, I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to actually define for myself what is right and wrong because this is the normative in society. Because everything on television promotes romance always must end in sex. Romance is, isn't romance unless there is sex. And I think that this is a fundamental problem that, it, that is creating a disintegration not only in culture, but in the church. And we have lost our power as we have become apologetic for God's ethics, even though the ethics of the world are proven to bring nothing but heartbreak and damage. And so I just challenge you, first of all, I just wanna say, if you are guys here or gals here, and you are looking at porn on a regular basis, you are feeding into the objectification of women in a very ugly and negative way. I always say that, you know, these, these, these things feed upon one another in a way that, that creates a culture. I think eating disorders and pornography are all interwoven. I think that our hypersexualization and the idealization of a particular vision of what people ought to look like, it's all interconnected. And it is deeply damaging. And I just want you to encourage you that the path toward freedom is always repentance and trust in Jesus. Because no matter what, even when you're looking at that garbage, he loves you. And his wrath is his love violated. He hates sin because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. And he wants to free you from guilt and shame. And he wants to free you from false ideas of what love is. Because that's not love. That's not even sex. That's something altogether, I would argue, demonic. And when you turn that computer screen on and you look at those things, I believe you're letting the devil into your house. And so it is that we have to speak these hard words because people, even in the church, are enslaved. And Paul is trying to show us this is the natural outcome when we choose to exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship the body rather than the king. So... Flee sexual immorality is what we are told in 1 Corinthians 6.18. For every sin that a man does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. We forget that we're the temple of God. Why would we grieve the Holy Spirit? And we do it all the time. And this is why Jesus is continually calling us back to a place, a return to the heart of the Father to experience real freedom, real liberation. He moves on from there to show us that we first find ourselves given up to this distorted worship. And this is what happens when we exchange the truth of God for a lie. But it ends up in distorted affections as well. And here is where he establishes, and this is the most, one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament, and especially in a place like Portland, and especially with how powerful and loud the LGBTQ voice is uh, in, in this city and in really in the U.S. and the West as a whole. And he goes on to say, for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. This is one of those passages that there is a lot of attempts right now in the church to reinterpret it and to make it somehow more, more palatable and less offensive. And let me just stay out of the gate. This is a very sensitive passage for myself from my wife, Darcy. Uh, my best friend in high school was gay. I was a kid who was like, I love dancing and singing. I spent all of my high school years living at the City Nightclub, which in the late 80s, early 90s was the only underage gay club in all of North America. What was really fascinating about that time is how much things have changed because at that time, it was taboo in America as a whole. It didn't matter whether you're religious or not religious to even be out. And so most of the kids that made up the gay community in, in Portland at that time were, were kids that had been kicked out of their homes for that choice. And they kind of found community. And I, and I was a part of that community. My girlfriend and I and my best friend Grant, we were all a part of this community. And Darcy's brother, Jason, uh, who died uh, six months before I met my wife of AIDS at 24 years old. So this is, a, this is a topic. When we came into the church and we saw the church villainizing a whole group, it was deeply disturbing to us. And it was actually one of the things that caused me to reject faith totally when I was in high school. And it was one of the things that kept Darcy from coming to faith for so long because in, in, in the mind of the LGBTQ community, Christians hate them. And that is deeply heartbreaking. 
And I think what we have to understand is, is the answer to that, that dilemma, surrendering our orthodoxy. Why is Paul even addressing this group? Why is he even pointing it out? He's not pointing it out to show us that this sin is worse than another sin. But here's what's offensive in today's climate is to say that acting upon those impulses is sin is a challenge. But let me remind you what Jesus reaffirms, what Genesis declares, what Paul is showing us is this is the natural reversal of Genesis chapter two, God's creation, our first parents in sinless reality. The man shall leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And as sin entered in and people became their own gods, there is a redefinition of every arena of existence. And so Paul is trying to show a contrast of what life looks like apart from God's authority. And he's not asking the question, is this difficult or not? He's saying, listen, we are all fundamentally broken and this is what rebellion against God's rule looks like, played out, and it's affected every arena. So when people ask the question about nature versus nurture, it does not matter. The question is, is do we trust King Jesus and do we believe that his ethics are the best possible choice for human flourishing? And so the question for me, and there is many people within our church that would identify as gay or same-sex attracted, I would just simply say this, and I, I asked several people before preaching this message, what are things that would like to be addressed? Well, one of the issues in the past is that the way that the church addressed this is until you're no longer this, you can't be accepted by Jesus. That's ludicrous, first of all. Because the gospel, you don't even know the things, half the things you're doing wrong when you come to Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to you. All I knew is I just needed someone to save me. You know what the first thing I did after I accepted Jesus is I went to a friend and I'm like, you're not going to effing believe it. I just like gave my life to Jesus. <laughs> so effing good. <laughs> like, hey, you probably, hey, you should tone that down. But isn't that, the, isn't that the reality is that Christians immediately want to control the situation in our selective sanctification. Hey, that's not how Christians act. I'm like, well, how do Christians act? You know what we act like? We act like a bunch of hypocrites half the time who pretend we're vulnerable and we don't even know the first thing about being vulnerable or real with our sin. Presenting ourselves as if we've somehow spiritually arrived is not the answer to the world's dilemmas. The answer to the world's dilemmas is us being humbled by God's goodness in spite of our fundamental brokenness and presenting a loving Jesus who is inviting all people to come and put their faith in him and allowing the cross to do its deadly work in our lives. So what do we do then with this passage? Well, the passage is here for a reason. And the passages to show us is that we don't have the right to define for ourselves what is right and wrong. And look at what the world is doing. As we have eradicated truth, what are we doing now? Portland is at the cutting edge of this. We're not, we're not even talking about LGBTQ anymore. We're, we're, we're past that. We're, we're in the new age of, I dare you to try to define me. I will be the one who defines myself. Gender fluidity is the, is, the, is the new frontier of people's desire to define for themselves what they are. And they'll say, I don't want to be identified with anything because I am my own person. I am my own God. And this is the fundamental root issue of all sin. And we all participate in it in various ways. We don't want people to tell us what to do. We don't want people to tell us what we are. But Christians need to understand that your identity is not in your sexual preference. Your identity is not in your career. It's not in, in your passions. Your identity is Christ. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The only thing that makes a Christian a Christian is Christ in the sinner, redeeming every arena of life. And so I would just simply say this, I think it's quite damaging to believe this false dichotomy that somehow getting saved and putting your faith in Jesus, that all of a sudden there's gonna be a transformation of attraction. And I think that, that, that it is a false promise to put forth. Have I seen it happen? Twice 
in all of my years of ministering to people who are same-sex attracted, I've only seen one person, once or one or two people that have actually had a change in affections and attraction. And I would just simply say this, well, what can I do then? And I would just say, follow Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Trust him, his way, his path, no matter how hard it is, is still better than choosing your own path and defining for yourself right and wrong and make your identity in him not in your preferences. And so it is that the scripture declares, I, I think that it's that we have to understand and do, are we as a community making a place for all people to come in and hear the gospel? Are we putting up barriers? Are we saying this person is acceptable, this person is not acceptable? In our, as community group leaders, in the ways that we're caring for people, are people feeling the love of Jesus when they come into this place? And this is what we need to understand, this disintegration of distorted affections. This is, we're not called to eradicate or surrender our orthodoxy, but we are called to function in grace. And so it is that he goes on to say, he gave them over to a debased mind in verse 28, since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God. And this is one of those things that we have to understand how important our thinking is, because we are what we think. We are what we love. And what you spend your time thinking about, if you spend your time, more time looking at Instagram than you do reading the scriptures, you're going to be defined by that thing. And, and what you give your time to will define your shallowness or your depth. And we want to be a people that grow in depth. And depth means that we sit in the discomfort of human existence and we allow the word of God to penetrate. I mean, I, I, Darcy and I were talking about this text. She's like, do I have to go to church today? And, and what do we have? Like, would you just skip? Let's just skip the, you know what? That one's not, we don't like that one. Uh, you know, we're going to go to the next. I recognize it's hard, but I refuse to apologize for God's word. I submit myself to it even when it's hard and even when I don't understand it. And here we see that, that, that God gives us over to a debased mind. And this is what you see in the disintegration, an exchange of worship. I worship the creature now, which creates an exchange in passions and desires. And then that plays itself out in, in a mind that is darkened to the truth and incapable of seeing the truth. Isn't it interesting that hell, we are told, is a place of outer darkness, um, and yet it's a place where the flame never stops burning. I've always thought about that, the black flame. What is that? And I realized, what does sin do? It blinds. And so it is a place of spiritual blindness. We can't know God, can't experience God. Isn't that what, what hell is? And don't we see people creating it for themselves on earth as their eyes are turned more and more inward upon themselves? The one principle of hell is I am my own. And so it is that this debased mind is, is one of those things that, we, that comes from this idea of overthinking about ourselves, giving ourselves over to our desires, opening up Pandora's box, no self-control. And what we find is deep, deep-rooted problems where we become more and more lost. God is lost to us and we are lost to ourselves and we feel alone and isolated. And we come back to that profound quote of Fleabag that where she so nails it and recognizes that there is nothing she can give herself to that's going to fill the empty void within her. And I think that this is, this is one of those things. I mean, think about what we give ourselves to. Do you binge the Bible? <laughs> You're like, somebody's like, I do. Well, not many of us do, but we binge a lot of things and we can't figure out why we feel uneasy with where we're at in life. Well, this distortion, this disintegration leads to a saturation. And it says, and they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. Just look at these things right here. I mean, filled with all manners of unrighteousness. Once again, Paul is constantly playing upon we are what it is that we are filled with. And what we are told is do not be drunk, which is dissipation, but be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. And if we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit has the ability to bring about new affections, realign our hearts so that we are surrendered to Jesus Christ. 
He may not change some of the difficult situations that our lives are in. He may not fix every glitch in our lives, but that's not the issue. The issue is, is are you surrendered to Christ and are you willing to follow him wherever he leads you? But here it is when we're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. It terrifies me how much I find myself in that list and how there really is a civil war within us between the spirit and the flesh. And the question is, is what defines, how do you, what's the litmus test that you are under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit? The question is, is, is it comes down and what Paul is creating categories of is there's this distortion uh, in character, in conduct, in communication, in imagination, and then ultimately in relationship. They are haters of God. You know what's fascinating is that Martin Luther said that he hated God when he was the most religious and strict monk because he's, he realized that no matter how perfectly he was able to keep the law, he still felt nothing but condemnation. And it wasn't until he realized that righteousness was something that comes from Jesus, not from his own effort, that he found a freedom and a new ability to love God because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Spirit. But if we are filled with the world and we give ourselves to everything that the world is preaching, and why would we trust fallen minds whose foolish hearts are darkened who are professing to be wise but have become fools. Why would we trust that? I say, you show me someone more trustworthy than Jesus and I'll follow them. And I would just simply ask you the question, of what are you putting your hope in? What's your identity? Is your identity in your sexual preference? Is your identity in your politics? What is your identity in? Because your identity is in Christ Jesus. And if that is the case, then what we can be filled with is his spirit and the spirit gives us a new way to function in a world that is upside down. And it leads, finally, to praxis. Look at the, the outcome of the, the outflow of sin in the world. And I think in verse 32, he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I love what Chesterton said I shared last week, that when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And here Paul says, this is the natural outworking of the exchange. When you exchange God for the lie, it plays itself out in a disintegration of our, of our understanding of the world and of, the, of ourselves. And that disintegration plays itself out in, in, a, in a saturation of immorality where every arena of our lives is controlled more by the flesh than it is by the spirit. And then that practice, it plays finally out and that though they knew the righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I've always been deeply convicted by this passage because this passage challenges the things often we separate ourselves from the, the, the depravity that we see in the world by saying, I don't do those things, but often in our entertainment, most of our entertainment is driven by the list that we just read. Most of our, our, nobody likes entertainment driven by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the Hallmark Channel and it sucks. We don't like that. We want, we want gritty. We want vengeance. We want, we want steamy romance. We want flesh. We want death. Isn't, it, isn't that a weird thing? Like our, we have like this craving for everything that God calls darkness, we often call light. It's the things that sells. It's the things that, I mean, all my favorite movies, unfortunately, fall into the category. I sometimes wonder, am I approving of the very things that I say God hates? by my willingness, and some would say, absolutely, because you already quoted from Fleabag. And that may be true, <laughs> and I don't care, because like you, I reject authority, totally, no. Uh, this is, here's the thing, we need to understand that it is difficult to escape 
the influence of this world and this age. And this is why we desperately need one another. How can we hold each other accountable? How can we rise above the rampant sexual immorality of this age? How do we stand against the tide, what the culture calls normal? And we're saying, that's not what the scripture declares. And what do I do with that tension? I would just simply say this, because Paul's gonna get into it next week. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, O woman who judges. For you judge those who practice such things, but you do the same thing. And that's why Paul is going to take us down this path where he's not going to say that group is worse than this group. He's going to say all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us desperately need the love of Jesus. And this is why the gospel is such good news, because Jesus took the judgment that you and I deserve into himself. He is the judge and the judged in our place. And he died for the victim and the victimizer. And you will be both in your life. And if you've been hurt by the church in the past or you feel like you've been rejected for decisions that you've made, I want you to know that we are so glad that you're here. And what I will often say when people say, are you guys an affirming church? I'm like, what do you mean by affirming? I affirm that all people are worthy vessels of God's grace. But I do not need to sacrifice our orthodoxy or the truthfulness of our scriptures for people to know that they're loved by me. And I think that this is one of the problems is that we have bought into this lie that we aren't really loving unless we accept and celebrate a person's decision. But why would we accept and celebrate a decision that hurts someone? If someone's sleeping around and they're hurting people, I'm not going to celebrate that decision because they think they're Don Juan. That's stupid. That's not loving. That's foolishness. The gentleness and the goodness of Jesus is also marked by a directness because the wrath of God is his love violated. He hates what robs him of what he loves, which is people. And we are called to hate what God hates and love what he loves. And what he loves is people, which means we never have the right to ever reject people. What we are called to do is to be conduits of his grace and to carry his message. And we should, be the, we should be hardest on ourselves. Lord Jesus, how am I reflecting my faithfulness to you as king? And where is my life not in line with that? Those are the first questions that we should ask. Because when you begin to ask that question, you will immediately be humbled by your own rebellion, by your own often rejection of his grace. And it will cause you to be a lot more gentle with the way that you deal with others. And so may we be a people that function in grace without wavering on our conviction that God's word is true and it's good and it's meant to set us free. Amen? Let's pray.